Great. Well, I just want to start by saying thanks for those of you who've been praying for our family over the last few weeks. As you know, we've been in the midst of a very serious puppy adventure. Uh, for those of you that didn't hear a few weeks ago, our dog had seven puppies. And so they are now about six and a half weeks old, and they're a mixture of really cute and really annoying. So if you could continue to pray for us, I would really, really appreciate that. Um, I have to say, I, I can't claim much credit for their uh, uh, upraising, upbringing. Uh, Carol has done most of the work. Although yesterday morning was my first kind of early morning duty uh, with the puppies. I managed to get through it. It was 45 minutes of chaos. Uh, the smell of fresh dog excrement in the morning is something that you don't want to wake up to. Uh, but I feel like my character was changed through the process. So thank you for praying for us. Please continue to do so. I would really appreciate that. Um, also, I feel like loads has happened since the last time I was speaking here. Since I last spoke, I've been in Australia and New Zealand, uh, Prophetic Academy in Horsham, Catalyst Weekend last weekend. How many of you are at Catalyst? Not nearly enough of you. What were the rest of you doing? It was amazing. It was an amazing, amazing weekend last week. We gathered with some 4,000 or others who are part of our kind of family and network of churches, and it was a really, really phenomenal time. God did so, so much. Um, I mean, just one real brief story. I was coming out of a seminar that I was doing, and a, a lady kind of walked out with me, and she was kind of just chatting on about the seminar and talking about what God has spoken. She said, Oh yeah, by the way, I thought you might like to know, three days ago I came to this conference in a wheelchair. I couldn't walk. I was like, what? Yeah, she said I couldn't walk. My arthritis was so chronic, I haven't been able to walk for weeks and weeks. So I, I came here in a wheelchair, my pain was absolutely chronic, I couldn't walk at all. I was instantly healed when I was prayed for three days ago. I've been walking ever since. Just thought you might like to know. It's like, wow. So... It was an amazing, amazing time. So I just love the way that God's been leading us this morning, looking at the kingdom, because that's one of the things that we're going to look at this morning, because we are starting a brand new teaching series called Storylines. Storylines, which is tracing some of the big themes, some of the big stories in the Bible. And if you're interested, just uh, do some of your own reading as we go through this series. There are two books that I want to recommend. One is called Storylines, which is written by Andy Croft and Mike Pulavacci. It's actually written for teenagers, but really accessible for everybody. Um, that goes through some of the big themes that we're going to be covering over this series. So I recommend that to you, Storylines. And then also another book by Vaughan Roberts called God's Big Picture, which I think is a really simple book, but it's one of the most helpful books to get a big overview of the story of the Bible. And so I'd really encourage you to get into that. How many of you like reading? How many of you hate reading? <laughs> Buy this book anyway. It will do you good, okay? If you read one book this year, try and read this one. I really, really recommend that. So we're looking at the, some of the big stories, and I grew up in Brighton, and so you're very familiar with kind of Brighton Rock on the seafront, and the thing about Brighton Rock is you snap it anywhere, and you will find writing all the way through that stick of rock. And in a way, that's what the Bible is like, because although the Bible is an incredibly diverse book, it's a kind of a library of 66 different books, over 40 different authors, written in two different languages, over two 2,000 years, yet you snap it anywhere and you find some common stories that run throughout the, the pages of the Bible. It's a library, but it's one story. And the Bible is very, very different than a, a phone directory or a book 
of quotations. Anyone remember the phone directory? The delivery of a phone directory every year and go, oh, my new phone directory. Anyway, if you don't remember phone directories, don't worry, ask someone next to you. But the Bible is very different than a phone directory where you can literally do lucky dip, you can open it, kind of close your eyes and, and point anywhere and something will jump out and make sense to you. But the Bible is a story. It's a little bit more like a C.S. Lewis novel or a John Grisham novel. Actually, if you just pick up the Bible and turn into the middle and do the lucky dip approach, you may not necessarily make a whole lot of sense to you. Because the Bible is a story. And understanding and getting your bearings in the story is very, very important. Apparently, um, SAS troops are trained. The very first thing that they do when they're uh, deployed into foreign territory and they parachute in, the very first thing that they're trained to do is pause and get their bearings. Because you don't know where you're going to, to until you know where you are. You've got to know where you are in order to know where you're going to. The Bible is a story. And context always brings meaning. So I could say to you this morning, that man is on fire. Now, if I was talking about the center forward of Brighton Hove Albion and he just scored a hat trick, which probably has happened somewhere in Brighton's history, you know, it would mean one thing. But if I was in front of a burning building, that would mean something completely different. Context means, brings meaning, which means you need to understand the context of the Bible if you're going to understand what God is trying to say to you and communicate to you in the story. Now, just a word of warning. In a minute, I'm going to talk very, very quickly, and I'm going to use a lot of words because we're going to cover the whole of the Bible in the next 30 minutes. You will thank me at the end, I hope, okay? So just stay with me. It's going to be a little bit of an adrenaline rush, all right? And it's going to be like story time. We're going to tell the big story of the Bible from Genesis right through to the end of the Bible, okay? But hang with me because we're going to look at one of the big themes of the Bible this morning, and that is the kingdom of God, okay? The kingdom of God, which is what we've already been singing about this morning. It's one of the biggest stories right throughout the Bible. Snap it anywhere, and you get this story, God is king, (laughs) okay? Snap it anywhere, and you get that story. He is king. God has not just come as savior, as friend, as Lord. He has come as those things, but he's also come as the king, He's come as the one who is the Lord and King of everything. Love the story that I heard from a prophetic guy called Bobby Connor, who tells this story of one of the meetings that he was preaching at in his home church. He noticed that halfway through the meeting, a guy came into the back of the service and sat right at the back of the room, and he had a kind of a black hoodie over his face, and he kind of looked homeless, actually. He kind of, and, and Bobby Connor just kind of clocked him, and he thought, I must go and say hello to that man at the end of my meeting. And so at the end of the meeting, he went up to this man who was sitting at the back of his meeting and shook his hand and introduced himself. Hi, I'm Bobby Connor. But he said a strange thing happened. As he shook this man's hand and looked into his eyes under, under this hoodie, he said it was like looking into the eyes of eternity. And he found himself saying to, to this man these words, thank you for coming to my meeting. And the man replied back to him, no, thank you for coming to mine. Then disappeared. How many of you know the king has not just come into your story, you come into his story? The Bible is his story. It's the story of the king. 
You've come into his story. It's a story about the king and his kingdom. And that's why when Jesus came preaching, the subject that he preached about more than any other subject was the kingdom. It was the single most repeated subject in his own teachings. And he spoke about the kingdom and he understood his own place in the kingdom storyline. My question to you this morning is, do you understand your place in the kingdom storyline? Do you understand where you fit? Jesus understood where he fit. And he preached the kingdom because the king was coming back to the planet. So let's look at this kind of kingdom storyline in eight chapters, okay? In eight stages. You ready? Okay, just nudge someone and say, strap your seatbelt on, hold on to your hat. All right, so here we go. The kingdom storyline starts right in the beginning of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. This is the pattern of the kingdom. God sets up what the kingdom's like right at the beginning of the story as he makes everything and it's perfect, it's paradise, he creates heavens and earth, he creates birds, he creates animals, he plants plants and trees, light and day, and he creates man and woman. And put simply, Genesis 1, life is pretty sweet. This is, the, this is the pattern of the kingdom. And what Genesis 1 reveals to us are three important things about what the kingdom is like. Number one, it reveals to us that in the kingdom, God is king. He is creator king. He's the one who makes everything. He makes space, time, and matter. Here's, here's how the beginning of the story it says, in the beginning, God creates time. God created the heavens, there's space. He created the earth. There's matter. God is king outside of time, space, and matter. He's the author. He's not part of creation. He's outside of creation. He's the king. And in fact, if the God that you worship can be defined by time, space, or matter, you are not worshiping the God of the Bible because he's the king who's outside of the cosmos that he made. He's the author. He's the architect. He made everything that you see and feel and touch. He belongs to him. It came from his mouth. He is outside of those things. That means that you were made to worship someone who is not defined by finite limitations. You were made to worship someone who is totally other than you. See, the question is not will you worship, the question is what do you worship? Every single man, woman, or child on this planet worships something. The question is what is it that you worship? Who is it that you worship? You can define what you worship by what you give your time, your money, your attention, your priorities to. But you were made to worship a creator king who is outside of time and space. Do you know God is very good, but he's also very great. He's very great. I love this quote in the Narnia stories where Susan is talking about Aslan, the great lion. She says, Aslan is a lion. Someone says to her, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good, and he's the king, I tell you. First thing you see about the kingdom in Genesis 1, that God is creator king. Secondly, you discover this in the kingdom, that in God's kingdom, humans are the royal sons and daughters of the king. You are his offspring. You are the fruit of his creative, creative design. You are the pinnacle of his creation. 
So you read Genesis 1, you see this progressively awesome and intricate design of God in creation, and it finishes with the most beautiful of all God's creations, the first man and the first woman. Why? Because they are made in God's image. One author says this, that creative order got progressively more beautiful, ending in the creation of woman. When I look at my wife and I look at my daughter, I think that's probably true. God's creation got increasingly more beautiful. But you are the pinnacle of God's handiwork. You're made in his image. You are the royal sons and daughters. You're the king's kids. And that's how the kingdom's defined. There's a king, but the king also has king's kids. You are his kids. You are his offspring. You're his work of art. You're his masterpiece. You're, the architect, you're architected by God himself. And then the third thing that we discover at the kingdom in Genesis 1 is this, is that our fruitfulness always flows from rest. In the kingdom, that's how things work. Fruitfulness, productivity, it flows from rest and it flows from presence. Do you know the very first thing that man and woman do in their very first day in perfect paradise is the first thing that they do? Nothing. <laughs> They rest. The first day is a day of rest. And then it's from there that they go and work. It's from there that they produce. It's from there that they're fruitful. You need to understand that in the kingdom, the way that you are productive is actually from a place of presence and it's from a place of rest. So you know, there is a big difference from resting from work or working from a place of rest. Which one are you doing? In the kingdom, this is how God designs it to be. And this is the pattern of the kingdom. Worship, identity, Productivity from rest. This is the pattern of what the kingdom is like. This is life as God intended. But then the story shifts on in Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 11. We find Satan entering the kingdom storyline, or as my spell checker corrected his name to, Stan. (laughs) Maybe we've had it wrong all these years, I don't know. Let's just call him the devil. But he enters the storyline for the very first time in Genesis chapter 3. He entices Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which has been forbidden to them by God. And they eat the fruit, choosing to reject the instructions of the king. Now, I personally think the fruit they picked was not an apple but a fig, because nobody likes figs. But what they were doing in that moment where they were choosing... They were choosing to break God's commandment. Was It was not so much about law-breaking, but making a decision to law-make. They were stepping into the seat of, I want to make my own laws. I want to define what good and evil is. I want to define what right and wrong is. I actually want to become the law-maker instead of God. And that's what's happening in that moment as they choose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're saying, I am going to live life without God as my reference. I'm going to make myself the king. That's what happens as they devalue the value system of the kingdom. And what happens is that the kingdom perishes. From this moment on, creation, including mankind, starts to live under the curse of what life looks like when God is no longer your king. And the effects are devastating. Immediately you get gender war. Immediately you get sexual shame. You get the first murder. You get the first natural disaster. You get the removing of us from God's presence. You get the division of people into different tribes and nations separated from one another. This is the effect when you stop having God as your king. When you start to become lawmaker instead of coming under God's rule and God's blessing. Because God cannot bless what does not originate from his own perfection. 
You cannot improve on God's standard. You cannot improve on his value system. God loves to bless what reflects who he is because he is perfection. And when you step outside of that, you create an inferior reality where the only consequence is a curse. And yet even here in the kingdom storyline, we see God the Father stepping in to say, do you know what? Even though you've chosen this route, I'm still going to have a plan to restore the kingdom. And this is what God says to Satan in Genesis 3.15. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Even in the perished kingdom of Genesis chapter 3, the father has an eternal rescue plan. He knew that one day Satan would strike the heel of his son Jesus, but Jesus ultimately would crush his head. Right at the beginning of the story, you had the rescue plan of the father. We move into uh, Genesis 12, where we find the kingdom is promised. And the way God starts to enact the, the, the recovery, the redemption plan of bringing back the kingdom rule of his, uh, his heart is to pick one man called Abraham and give him a promise. This is how the storyline of the kingdom starts to get reignited. Literally plucks out a pagan man called Abraham who's minding his own business, living in a region called the Ur of the Chaldees, and God just decides, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. <laughs> just imagine, you know, it's like you know, walking past Bob in the street. God's just like, right, Bob, I'm going to choose you. I'm going to bless the whole earth through you. This is the promise that God gives Abraham, Genesis 12. He says, leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family. Go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. Then get this, all the families on earth will be blessed through you. Wow, what a promise. What an amazing promise. John Stott says of this promise, it may truly be said without exaggeration that not only the rest of the Old Testament, but the whole of the New Testament are an outworking of this promise of God. This is a crucial moment, and it's amazing, is it, that God's plan to change the world so often happens by giving a promise to one person. Do you know that you have the ability, simply by believing the promise of God, to change the world? History will prove whether you believe the promises of God or not. History proves that Abraham, in this moment, heard the promise of God, believed the promise, and Scripture says it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, instantly he was made right with God just because he believed the promise. Do you know, you, you don't need a movement of millions of people to change the world. All you need is one person who actually believes the promises of God. You could be that person. You could be that person who actually looks at the promises and says, do you know what, I believe those. I'm going to live like I believe them. Apparently once a, a young man came to Smith Wigglesworth, a great Pentecostal pioneer, found him at a train platform. And Wigglesworth was known to never go anywhere without a Bible on him. And the young man came to Wigglesworth and said to Wigglesworth, Mr. Wigglesworth, I need a promise to stand on. I need a promise to stand on. So Wigglesworth got his Bible out, threw it on the, the floor of the train station. He said, stand on that. So the young man did. And then Wigglesworth said, now you're standing on a great heap of promises. Believe every one of them and you'll be fine. Love that. Believe every one of them and you'll be fine. What has God promised to you and do you believe it? 
Because the way God starts to uh, reintroduce the kingdom storyline is by giving this incredible promise to one man, Abraham, that one day from his seed, the whole earth would be blessed. So the story moves on. Chapter number four of the kingdom story. You still with me? All right. Genesis chapter 12, really right through a lot of the rest of the Old Testament, you get the story of God outworking this promise to Abraham through Abraham's descendants. First you get Abraham, then you get his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob, and then Jacob's son Joseph, and then Joseph, the heirs of Joseph, which was Israel. God begins to work out this promise to bless the whole earth through his people, through Abraham's seed, and they become the nation of Israel. Just as God wanted to bless the world through Abraham, now he's like, Israel, you are my chosen vessel to bless the nations of the earth. You are my called out people, and through you I'm going to bless the nations of the earth. Israel, of course, finds itself trapped in slavery in Egypt under the pharaohs, gets miraculously delivered through the blood of the lamb and the miracles of God. Moses leads them out of slavery and towards the promised land, which they enter through Joshua. Incidentally, Joshua is the Hebrew name for Jesus. Just thought you might like to know that. And so this story begins to unfold. God bringing his people into the promises and into the promised land. And really in this season, this part of the storyline of the kingdom, the kingdom finds its its zenith, its high points through the kingship of David and Solomon. Saul was the first ever king of Israel, but David was his successor, followed by his son Solomon. And it was under David and Solomon that the nation state of Israel enjoyed its, its highest moment in all of its history. And it was a moment where David lived under the fear of God and worshipped God. And in the temple, the presence of God lived day and night. There was worship right throughout Israel as they worshipped Yahweh, the God who called them out of Egypt. And in those days, the nation was blessed. And you suddenly saw this, this kingdom blessing that God had promised to Abraham start to work its way out. And under Solomon, it said dignitaries from far and wide would travel to the nation of Israel just to look upon the incredible magnificence and splendor of the kingdom because it was a kingdom that was living under the kingdom blessing of God because they'd again reinstated God as their king. That's what happens. You reinstate God as your king. That's what happens to your life. That's what happens to your nation. And Israel lived in this incredible season where the kingdom was starting to shine brightly again. But there was one big issue, and this is why it was only the partial storyline of the kingdom, and the issue was the problem of the human heart. Someone said this, that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And in those days, while Israel was externally being blessed, there was still the problem of internal unrighteousness. Not being able to be changed from within, not being able to have a new nature actually not being able to help but sin and rebel against God. And ultimately, that is a story that develops and unfolds. Because Solomon, while he started as a righteous ruler, eventually 1 Kings 11 says that he married many foreign wives and he started to worship foreign gods. He does exactly what his ancestors Adam and Eve had done and he dethrones God as king and makes himself the lawmaker. And that's why you can get a book like Proverbs, which was written by Solomon with incredible wisdom 
and it shows what life was like when Solomon had God as his king. But you can also have a book like Ecclesiastes, which was also written by Solomon when he wasn't following God. And you get these words, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That's what life looks like when you dethrone God as your king. And what happens after Solomon's death is that the glory that Israel had known begins to dissipate. It begins to disperse. There begins to be infighting. Civil war breaks out in Israel. Israel is divided into two parts, a northern kingdom, Israel, and a southern kingdom, Judah. That's why if you read your Old Testament and you get phrases like Israel and Judah, and you think, well, who the heck is who and what on earth is going on? Well, that's what's going on. Civil war broke out. The kingdom is divided, split, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom that hated one another. That's why you come into the New Testament pages, Samaritans were hated by Jews because of their history, their racial history. The nation was divided and ultimately because of their rebellion against the king, they are both carried off into exile. The northern kingdom is destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 BC. The southern kingdom, Judah, lasts for about another hundred years and then itself is destroyed by the Babylonians who destroy the temple and they carry off the best young men and women into captivity in Babylon. That's where the story of Daniel comes in. Daniel was a young man who was carried off as an exile, as a slave into a foreign land. And he would have remembered the days of living in the promised land but then it all disappearing. And again, seemingly the kingdom storyline had broken down. And they await deliverance. This, of course, is chapter number five of the kingdom storyline, where the kingdom begins to be prophesied again. Because in this kind of gloomy, depressing, despairing era of Israel's history, God begins to speak to Israel again through the prophets. There are 17 books in your Old Testament. They are prophetic books. They're prophecy. They're words of men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Amos who began to come to the people of God and say, do you know what? God is not finished with you. Don't despair. You're in exile because of your sin. But don't worry. God has got a plan. He's got a kingdom plan. He's not finished with you yet. The king is coming back. The king is coming back. It's not the end, folks. Have hope. There's more to come. And in fact, men like Isaiah and Daniel began to not just prophesy about the restoration of the former glories of David and Solomon. They began to speak of a completely different era. You know, we used to play with a model plane as a kid. You know, model planes are great until you actually get into a real airplane. You're like, wow, it's so much bigger than I thought. And that's what the prophets were saying. They were saying, do you know what? What you've seen so far is like a model airplane compared to what's about to come. There is one who's going to come on the planet and he is going to completely restore the kingdom. And the themes of their prophetic ministry are amazing. They prophesied, for example, that the king was going to come from heaven and that when he did, he would be like a servant. He would be a servant king who would lay his life down in order to ransom his people back. Isaiah 53 says, he will be crushed for our sins and the punishment that brings us peace will be laid upon him. They prophesied about the kingdom touching every single nation. 
They prophesied about God creating a brand new temple. They prophesied about God making a brand new creation. They prophesied about God making a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31. No longer will I write laws on tablets of stone, but I'll write my law on human hearts. They will all know me from the least to the greatest. These are the, prof- the promises of God to the, the people of God. There's going to be a new king, and the government will be on his shoulders. Isaiah chapter 9. To us a child is born. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And in this season, the prophets are saying, God has not given up on you. The king is coming. And this is what he's going to be like. And he's going to completely blow out of the water anything that you've ever known. And the Old Testament finishes with this sounding note from the prophet Malachi. He says this, Look, I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. And so the Old Testament closes And there are 400 years of silence. 400 years where the people of God are waiting for the king to show up in the temple and begin brand new creation. And this brings us to chapter number six of the kingdom storyline. Suddenly Jesus shows up. Mark 1.15, he says, the time has come. (laughs) the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. There's one moment that I love in the life of Jesus where Jesus goes to his hometown synagogue in Nazareth in Luke chapter four. And it says that the scroll of Isaiah, their favorite prophet, was handed to Jesus Now remember that in a synagogue there were two seats. One of them was the seat that was reserved for the king who would one day come back to his temple like Malachi prophesied. It was a seat that nobody was allowed to sit in except Messiah. Because they were expecting Messiah to come. Just bear that in mind. So Jesus is in his hometown synagogue. He gets handed the scroll of Isaiah and he reads Isaiah chapter 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty for the captives, sight for the blind, the lame walk, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Luke chapter four says he handed the scroll back to the attendant and it says every eye was fastened on him and it says Jesus sat down. Where did he sit? He sat in Messiah's seat. And he says to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The time has come. The time has come. And Jesus' message was clear. The waiting is over. The king has come back to his creation. The king has entered the story again. The spiritual exile is over. I'm here, folks. It's me. I'm the answer. I'm the fulfillment of every prophetic promise that you've ever read in the Old Testament. I'm the one. I'm here to proclaim the Lord's favor has come back in me. Stunning. That's why Jesus says to his disciples, 
Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but they didn't see it. And they long to hear what you hear, but they didn't hear it. That's why 1 Corinthians 1.20 says, all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. All God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. Yes, and what happened in the life of Jesus, in his ministry, in his miracles, in his teaching, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, is the kingdom of God showed up. The future kingdom came in the king, the servant king, the one who laid his life down as a ransom for many. The king had come back. And every promise is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the king whose resurrection crushes Satan's head. Jesus is the seed of Abraham who blesses all the families of the earth. Jesus is the perfect and eternal sacrifice for sin. Jesus is the perfect presence of God, the word of God who became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus is the new temple and the resting place of God's glory. Jesus is the new Adam, the representative of a brand new human race born again into new creation. Jesus is the new covenant made with his own blood. Jesus is the true Israel, the head of a new nation, a worldwide people, Jew and Gentile, belonging to God. Jesus is the suffering servant who laid his life down as a ransom for many. Jesus is the new king, resurrected in glory and crowned with many crowns. Jesus is the present kingdom. It's Jesus. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You want to enter the kingdom? There's only one way. You've got to come through Jesus. He is the new and living way. It's him. It was fully present in the life of Jesus. But you know, even that is not the end of the story. There's still two more chapters to go. So chapter number seven is the proclaimed kingdom. It's the proclaimed kingdom so that We see Jesus after his resurrection and ascension. He spoke for 40 days about the kingdom of God and then he gave his disciples this commission, Mark 16. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved and whoever does not believe will be condemned. Your commission now is to proclaim this same gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, to all of creation. That is now your mandate. You've been swallowed up into his story. You can get excited about this at any moment. You've been swallowed up into God's story to announce to all of creation, the king has come and you're invited to come in. And that is why you're not in glory right now. The reason you're still on your chair listening to this message is that your work is not finished. You're here to extend the kingdom. That's why you're on the planet. It's not just pie in the sky when you die. It is steak on the plate while you wait. You can have your cake and eat it. You can enjoy eternal glory. But guess what? You get to dispense glory now. You're a dispenser of the kingdom and its glory. The gospel of the kingdom is good news. It's peace, justice, healing, deliverance, comfort. And by the power of the Holy Spirit we dispense the victory that Jesus has won. Love the story that Alan Scott shared at Catalyst Festival. He shared of a a lady in his church who went to a superstore, like a supermarket, and she was just at the checkout, kind of getting her items kind of scanned through, and she 
had this kind of divine appointment where she prayed for the cashier who was instantly healed as she prayed for her. And the cashier just starts to kind of weep and cry. And so this lady just leads this lady to Christ to know Jesus because the kingdom has shown up in supermarts or wherever it was. And this lady is so overcome with emotion that she says to this, this Christian, she said, I'm really sorry, I just need to go and have a moment. I'm just going to hand you over to one of my colleagues. And so one of her colleagues comes and takes over her food processing. And the, of course, the first question is, what just happened? And she's like, well, <laughs> I'm a Christian. And she explained what just had happened. And she's like, would you like to know Jesus as well? And she's like, yes, please. So she prays for the second cashier and the kingdom just shows up. She leads this lady to Christ. She's so overcome with emotion that she just starts crying and weeping at the checkout. And she's like, I'm so sorry. I just don't think I can carry on. I'm going to have to pass you on to one of my colleagues. And so she passes it on to a third colleague. Who, Of course, the first question they ask is, what on earth is going on? And so she says, well, this is Jesus. And by now, she's not being tactful at all. She's just like, that was Jesus. The kingdom has come. Would you like to know the king? Oh, yes, please, I would. So she leads the third cashier to Christ right there and there in the supermarket. What should have been a five-minute trip turned into a 45-minute trip because the kingdom suddenly showed up. Listen, that is your mandate on the planet. That is why you're still here, is that you get to extend the kingdom and introduce the king. <laughs> the kingdom story is not yet finished. In this book, Mike Pilavacci says this. He says, we are now a people of the future kingdom of God. We are to live lives of the future in the present. The challenge is, if it's not good enough for the future kingdom of God, that it's not good enough for the present either. So when we see someone sick, we pray that God would heal them. When we see someone outside the kingdom, we invite them in. When we see someone in pain, we do all that we can to wipe the tears from their eyes. The kingdom storyline began with the kingdom in Eden and it will end with the perfect kingdom in Revelation. But we are called to live in the kingdom now and not yet. You live in the overlapping of two ages where you can say, come in, come and experience the king. And then lastly, here's the last chapter in the kingdom storyline and it's the perfected kingdom. It's the perfected kingdom, which you can read about mostly in the book of Revelation, where Revelation begins to unpack that even one day, this present age, with all of its limitations and frustrations and pains and sicknesses and tears, all the things that don't yet fully bow the knee to Jesus, that one day, Jesus the king, he came a first time as a little baby, he will come again as a victorious king, riding on a white horse, king of kings, lord of lords, and he will finally vanquish sin, death, and sickness, and make every wrong thing right. You live between the first coming of the king and the second coming of the king. But one day he will come back and what will happen in that last day is a little bit like a 60-minute makeover show. You know those shows where they go into someone's house, they rip out the junk and they put brand new good stuff in. Well, at the end of the ages, that's exactly what King Jesus is going to do. He is going to start by ripping out of this planet every single thing that is not like the king. He's going to rip out sickness. He's going to rip out disappointment. He's going to rip out depression. He's going to rip out despair. He's going to rip out all of that stuff, including he's going to rip out Satan, and he's going to judge him in a fiery fit of fire forever and ever and ever. 
Revelation 20 verse 10 says, Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. There he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. God will rip out every single thing that's wrong with this planet. But then he will put every right thing in. Revelation says that in God's perfect paradise, at the end of all things, there'll be no sickness, no pain, no tear. Every wrong thing will be righted. Every injustice will see justice. And God will rule. God will rule. There'll be no more earthquakes, no more volcanoes, no more tsunamis, no more mysteries that you cannot explain. It says when you see him, you will know him just as you're fully known. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea also was gone. And then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. Notice this, that you're not going up to heaven, but heaven is coming down. That means that God does not live in heaven, but heaven lives in God. Heaven is not a geographical destination. Heaven exists within the person of God. And what happens at the end of all things, God will make a brand new heavens and a brand new earth and you will live with him in perfect paradise in the aeons of time forever and ever and ever enjoying his perfect blessing, walking with God, not this time in the cool of a garden, but in the cool of a glorious heavenly city created in his image that you were made for. That is your true home. That is your true home. And the kingdom story is finally summed up in the last words of the Bible. Revelation 22, verse 20. He who is the faithful witness to all these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And here is our response. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the kingdom storyline.